the question was, how do responsibility and compassion intertwine? Well, responsibility, the ability to respond. I think really in English when we say responsibility, it's more like the obligation to respond, isn't it? And so responsibility takes different forms depending upon the, uh, the nature of the obligation that we're responding to. I mean, we have certain things that we are responsible for by law and, and uh, you know, the uh, polite standards of society that help us to get along with each other, and I don't think that's what you mean. No. You, you probably, since you've linked it to compassion, you're probably thinking of the kind of responsibility we feel towards the people in our lives that we interact with. Would that be correct? And uh, so that would be that would be either moral and ethical responsibility or it would be that responsibility that really is already coming from a certain degree of, of caring for the other beings or it, it's already coming from some element of compassion. So Are you interested in the moral and ethical aspects of responsibility or those that are already rooted in some sense of uh, inherent sense of uh, uh, compassion towards? I think you already answered what I was asking. Oh, did I? Because, yeah, <laughs> because you put out the worldly part of what responsibility yeah. is and what the inner and how it is linked to yeah. compassion. So, yeah, I, that opened my window. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was easy. <laughs> you know, I, actually, there's, there's a saying, uh, probably applies to what just happened, and it's really true, is that, is that uh, often the solution is just framing the, the, the problem properly. <laughs> Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to do that. Yes, Deborah. On a different note, I wondered if you would go over um, right understanding, right view. Right understanding and right view. Mm -hmm. Okay, these are these are aspects of uh, of wisdom, and uh, right understanding is. Uh, of course, understanding is a kind of knowledge, and right view is—it's uh, it, what happens at a more immediate and intuitive level. How we interpret the world and our experience, uh, sort of preconceptually, before we start thinking about it. And right understanding is—is is really the uh, the Dharma wisdom that we use, uh, that we apply 
when we start thinking about things. So, um, right view, and it's it's interesting that right view and right understanding, these two components of the Eightfold Path, uh, they are together, I refer to as wisdom, and they are actually uh, they actually refer to the uh, wisdom of awakening and enlightenment as well. So they're both the beginning and the end of the path in that sense. So right view begins, uh, it, it really begins with the recognition that uh, that life, that, that the nature of, of life is... Uh, uh, that it is dissatisfactory and that all beings of every kind are experiencing that dissatisfactoriness and that all beings of every kind are being compelled by desire and aversion to try to, in one way or another, another overcome this uh, dissatisfactoriness. Um, so in, in the most, in, in a most uh, sort of fundamental sense, right view is coming to realize the, uh, the first and the second and the third of the noble truths. That, uh, but in the beginning, we don't really understand them fully. So uh, right view, means that it refers to the degree to which we can or incorporate an understanding of the Dharma into our daily life. In terms of the insight that leads to the ultimate understanding, uh, right view means ceasing to look at things in the way that we ordinarily do and to understand that uh, that being and experience are the same thing and to turn our attention to understanding our experience. And then we understand our experience in terms of uh, pleasure uh, and pain, desire and aversion and craving and, and the ways that we act out of it. We understand that other people are behaving in the same way and so it opens us up to, to understanding and uh, compassion, patience, understanding, and compassion. And actually, this is both for ourselves uh, and for others. So as more and more we develop right view, then the more patience, compassion, and understanding that we have for ourselves and for others, because we see the, that uh, all, of, all of our behaviors and our experiences are rooted in the same processes, and this is also where the understanding of uh, karma can become a part of our view when we begin to see that whatever we're experiencing, however we're experiencing it, is um, that we have to take responsibility for it rather than blaming it on someone or something else, but rather our mind is, uh, is, is creating our reality, and so therefore whatever we're experiencing uh, is the way that we've conditioned our mind to work. 
right understanding is it would be to uh, transfer all of these in terms of the of the eightfold path, which is the fourth noble truth, which itself includes right view and right understanding. It's all these things are, you know, each leads to the other and connects with the other. But um, uh, then we need to understand what we need to understand at an intellectual level is the need for and the importance to live virtuously and understanding what virtue means. It means not doing those things which uh, are harmful to ourselves to other being, or, or to other beings in various ways. It involves uh, coming to understand what not harming means. And of course, non-harming obviously means uh, not causing unnecessary pain or suffering, but also non-harming means not contributing to or towards the creation of uh, the kinds of karma that are going to do harm in, in the future. Uh, so. And it, it's recognizing, you know, it's, it's understanding what's necessary to succeed in doing this. We need to, we need to have, uh, we need to do meditation, practice right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, so that we are able to develop right view and right understanding. They, uh, that having the, the intellectual understanding that might come from listening to talks or reading books is not going to uh, either produce the effect or even make us capable of bringing these things about. That uh, we, uh, the, the purpose of the practices are to make us to be the kind of being that's capable of applying the understanding and exercising the kind of view that will lead to ultimate wisdom. So a person who has right view and right understanding begins by shifting their view of themselves and the world and thinking of themselves as a series of experiences and the others that they encounter are basically identical to them. That we, each of us as a sentient being is a series of uh, separate experiences or conscious events that have some certain content and that the, the nature, the quality, the flavor of those experiences is the result of karma. And then the way we react to it in the moment conditions, a, uh, conditions our future and determines how we're going to react to it. So seeing ourselves and seeing other people from that point of view changes our behavior. Understanding how karma works uh, will help us to be able to, to change karma. And to understand how karma works, we need to understand craving, desire, and aversion. We need to understand how they are rooted in the belief of a self and so right view and right understanding 
then evolves into the process of, uh, of clearly understanding the, the empty nature and the impermanent nature of the world, the empty nature of the self, the dissatisfactoriness of clinging to self and things as being real. And the realization that through non-attachment to self and through non-attachment to things, that liberation will come about. So. I noticed that um, the Buddha never said anything about right belief. And it seems like that sometimes gets um, thrown into the mix in certain things that I've read that, hmm. you know, uh, right view and right belief, believing in the, the appropriate things are somehow private. Um, it doesn't seem to be at all to me. Can you give me an example of that? Um, well, belief about karma, mm -hmm. for example, you know, or reincarnation. Um, there are certain things that you read about reincarnation that um, don't make sense at all mm -hmm. to a Western mind. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to be necessary mm -hmm. for um, walking, the, walking the path. That, uh, yes, that is very true. Um, Buddhism is not one single thing. And it has changed dramatically over time, since the time of the Buddha. Um, and so there are forms of Buddhism that do expect people to form and to hold religious beliefs. And so they may form and hold religious beliefs about uh, reincarnation, about certain kinds of description of karma, about the existence of certain cosmologies and certain kinds of beings that occupy those cosmologies. Um, those were never a part of the Buddha's teaching. And he did refer uh, to what, uh, you know, the word belief and, and faith he did discuss those things in the sutras, like what we do know about what the Buddha taught is contained in, in the sutras. And, of course, those two have undergone some alteration, and it's hard to know what. But whenever he spoke about faith or, or belief in the sense that you're talking about, um, he was really speaking in terms of uh, having the kind of confidence that uh, the the kind of confidence that allows you to discover through your own experience through your own practice through your own investigation the truths that he was teaching he did say come and see for yourself he did say in a number of different sutras don't take anything uh, as, as being a fact because I say so, or because any sage says so, or because it's any and contained in any traditional text. He said the only things that uh, you should you should accept fully are those things that you can you can discover and demonstrate yourself through your own 
application and investigation. But he did say that you have to have, he said one of the factors that you have to cultivate is, it's a word that is usually translated as faith, but I think maybe confidence would be a better word. You have to consciously and deliberately examine the examine the Buddha, the teacher, uh, the other uh, members of the Sangha, you know, his chief disciples and all the other arhats and everything else like that, to obtain the confidence that is necessary to, uh, to pursue this process and discover these things for yourself and to carry out the investigation. And he, when asked about things like reincarnation was a very, was the dominant belief at the time. And as a matter of fact, the whole of the spiritual practice in those days was to overcome the endless cycle of reincarnation. It was just taken for granted by everybody that reincarnation was an absolute unquestionable fact. And so he didn't challenge that. He merely uh, restated it and said, well, let's call it rebirth, and, uh, I, and I tell you that you have no self, and what is reborn is only these uh, karmic predispositions that you have created. And the other, there were many different beliefs about karma at that time, which he disagreed with. So what he did is he said, you know, he presented a completely different version of karma. He said, when I say karma, I mean intention. And he spoke of it entirely as in psychological terms. But in the, uh, the Buddhism that we have today, the Theravada Buddhism is basically based on uh, a compilation of teachings that was done about 1,200 years after the Buddha died by um, uh, a man named Buddha Gosa. And that, in turn, was based on a, a part of the original teachings, uh, uh, or the original collections of Buddhist teachings, called the Abhidharma, which was created uh, over a period of several hundred years, beginning immediately after the Buddha died, but it actually took uh, a few hundred years to become mature by scholars who examined all of the Buddha's own teachings in the sutras and in uh, the Vinaya, which is the discipline, and it contains a lot of narrative stories. So scholars had gone through and they extracted what they thought was the essence of the philosophy and teaching of the Buddha, and they called it Abhidhamma. And by the time, by a few hundred years after the Buddha had died, Buddhism had separated into several different sects, with several, each one had their own Abhidhamma. Right? So, uh, and Theravadan Buddhism, like I say, is based on a compilation of the teachings of the day, 1200 years after the Buddha died, which were interpretations uh, based largely on the Abhidhamma, which contains a lot of ideas that actually were never in the sutras themselves. Then the other main division of Buddhism is Mahayana. 
And there were several different Abhidhammas that developed in different Mahayana sects. And then, once again, we're talking uh, uh, more than a thousand years after the, the time of the Buddha, and then continuing for uh, uh, about uh, 1,800 years. Actually, some, some teachings even later than 1,800 years after the Buddha. But from roughly about 1,000 years to 1,800 years, after the time of the Buddha, there continued to be more debate and refinement and philosophical interpretation, uh, criticisms of the things that were contained in these different Abhidhammas. The Mahayana Buddhism spread to different countries and it took on completely different forms. It amalgamated other things into itself. It went into China and took a unique form called Chan, and then Chan moved into uh, Japan and uh, became further totally transformed and became Zen. And Buddhism went into Tibet and incorporated a lot of uh, North Indian, Kashmiri Hinduism and the Bon shamanic religion of, of Tibet. So the Buddhism we have today reflects a lot more than what the Buddha actually taught. And in all of these countries, it is a religion. In all the Theravadan countries, Sri Lanka, Burma, uh, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Laos, uh, in all of these countries, Buddhism is a religion with all the trappings of religions and all kinds of beliefs. And when you take a book, take up a book and read about Theravadan Buddhism, you're going to be presented with all of those beliefs. But and if you say, oh, well, how do I understand and look into it a little deeper, you'll find that, well, the Laotian version is different than the Sri Lankan version, and the Thai version is, has subtle differences from either of those or from the Burmese, and so forth. And likewise with any of the Mahayana forms of Buddhism. So there's a lot of differences between them, and they contain a lot of religious elements. So the question that you're asking is, when you read about any form of Buddhism today, what you're doing is you're confronting a religion that has been created out of the Buddhist teaching over a long period of time with the addition of elements from different cultures and from other different religions. You know, different, different religions have been incorporated into Buddhism to create a Buddhist religion suited to a particular culture. So, if the same thing were to happen today, what would happen would Buddhism would come into a Christian society and somebody would create a Christian Buddhist religion. And that's the thing that happened in these other countries. And so that's what can be very confusing. And that's why I have a lot of preference for trying to go back and understand what the Buddha himself was teaching. And... Uh, than to look at these later traditions and see what what they have to offer that is uh, valuable and, and helpful. But thanks. I think I just needed to hear that find out for yourself part again. That's, yeah, that's what makes perfect sense. Yeah. And thank you. Yeah, and that that is something that is definitely not stressed. Uh, 
when you come to uh, any of the forms in which Buddhism is actually practiced in modern Buddhist countries. Uh, it's come and practice according to our system. It's not come and test these ideas and discover their truth for yourself. It's the assurance if you do it our way, then you'll come to to uh, you'll you'll come to agree with us, which is a subtle difference, but it's still it. It, it, there is that still insistence and that creates, the, of course, all the cultural pressure if you live in a society with, uh, or even if you were part of a modern Buddhist group in North America with that set of beliefs, you're under a lot of pressure to hold those beliefs. right? And so it's very, very hard to take the attitude that, all right, well, I don't know if I really agree with this or not, but I'm willing to investigate it and think about it and discover for myself. It's difficult to do that. Instead, because of the pressure, it's more like, okay, I guess I have to convince myself, you know, uh, that this must be true. So. The debating, debating that they do, you know, for days and days in the Tibetan mm-hmm. monasteries is, is to, for that reason. But do they do that in other countries too? Mm-hmm. No, I don't know of other countries. I mean, everybody debates. Um, but as far as debating as a formal thing, but to be quite honest, my impression of Tibetan debate is that it's the whole idea of it is to uh, it's intellectual arguments to convince you and it's based, the debates are all based on authority of the books written by the uh, masters in my school against the, the books written by the masters in your school and so we'll argue these fine points of doctrine and I'll try to demolish the logic of your argument so that I'll be right. <laughs> and uh, it would be wonderful if it were if Tibetan debate were, you know, at the level of uh, of, of, of going beyond all these assumptions, but it doesn't. Everybody, each debater starts off of what they've been trained in in their school. And their job in the debate is to defend that point of view. You know, it's like in high school where the teacher would say, okay, you take this view and you take this view and now debate, you know, except that you've been trained in a particular monastery to defend a particular point of view. Well, they're debating within their own schools, but that's a form of teaching. Well, that's a way... A form of learning. That's a way of coming to the point where you are totally convinced that your school's view is true. And just simply the fact that you can have many different schools and in every school everybody becomes convinced through debate that their view is true, shows you that there is a fundamental fallacy in trying to determine what's ultimately true and what's ultimately not by logically and intellectually debating. Because if, otherwise it would lead everybody to exactly the same conclusion. And since it doesn't, it's, it's flawed. But, but it could be from the point of view of, does this work for you? You know, yes. and, and and I think that that's what they try to do over there. Well, that a good that would be a very good way to a very good way to 
used to be is to clarify understanding when somebody says, well, uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, so if the debate were to lead to understanding. Uh, but the ultimate thing is that whatever you become convinced of in the debate, once again, if you can't verify it through your own experience, you know. And so, for example, debates about uh, what must be the nature of the different Buddha heavens. Oh. <laughs> and things like that. Well, you know, and, and a lot of there's a lot of debate that's about that kind of thing. So logically, if the nature of a Buddha is such and such, then a a Buddha realm must have these characteristics, and therefore, you know, and it's all a logical construct. But the way, but the the Dharma talks that you you're giving here, I mean, there are certain. Um, there's, there's certain thoughts in Buddhism, certain things that they say that right off the top of your head, when you first heard it, you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense to right. me. But when you elaborate on it and, mm -hmm. and bring it out and everything, you know, it's like layers of understanding develop, mm -hmm. and then you you can see how, well, yes, this I can see where this this is right. true for me, or this yes. works for me. Right, and that's, that's what's really important. Because I would say, universally, uh, people, when told that, well, according to the Buddhist teaching, everything is empty, you know, doesn't make sense. Or when you're told that, that you don't really have a self uh, the way that you think you do, you know, it makes no sense at all. And so, then it is through discussion, and, but it's not through discussion alone. Through discussion alone, you could be convinced of a bunch of, that, well, I suppose it must be that way, but it sure doesn't seem like that to me. What's important is when you get to the point where you say, well, it really is that way. Yeah, it's through your experiences and through yeah. your meditations that you can see the truth of that. Yeah. And that affects your whole life. That's right. <laughs> then then you really then then you really have right understanding and right view. Yeah. So yeah. It has to ultimately it has to come from experience. Ultimately you do have to come and see for yourself. And you have to be prepared to change your mind a number of times along the way too. And you have to see oh over and over again, how what you think is true is not, or what you think exists is existing is not existing, and even with yourself, yes, I mean, you right. just have to you have to become aware of that over and over again. That when you thought this about this person, you were totally off the mark, mm -hmm. or you know, or th that you thought this situation was this way, and then you suddenly see. No, it's not that way at all. Mm -hmm. You know, over and over again, becoming aware of that, then you begin to get a right view of things yeah. that that you don't know anything. <laughs> That's right. Or, or, the, or the nothing is nothing is it's nothing. from its own side the way it appears to you to be. That's right. Yeah, and of course, it's the experiences that you have. There's nothing different. Everybody has the experience of. I see this person this way, and you see them different. But the difference is that the normal reaction is, well, but I'm right and you're wrong, right. instead of, 
oh, I guess that means that nothing's the way it appears to be. <laughs> yeah. It saves so many arguments and hatreds. That's right, yeah. And there's, a, and there's a difference in debate and argument, the purpose of which is, uh, you know, the, probably most of the arguments that human beings carry out, most of the discussions people carry out, are for the sake of proving that I'm right and you're wrong. But the best ones, the really value ones, the valuable ones, are for taking to see if two minds working together can discern more clearly uh, what is, uh, what's more true and more accurate than one can by itself. You know, and that even two groups of people coming from different sets of training, instead of one defeating the other, that together they can achieve a, a more complete uh, more comprehensive, a more uh, you know, a, a greater degree of accuracy and truth in their descriptions. And that's where we really want to go. <laughs> <laughs>